Hey there, welcome again to Comic Syllabus, uh, where we read widely and dig deep in comics and graphic novels. I'm Paul, an English teacher, here to look at Junie Baz Jalia from TKO Studios, as well as our polybag segment and, um, and also our first edition of The Infinite Unlimited, if you're catching this in podcast form. Um, here we dig deep, but we might spoil some premises and plot points uh, and not punchlines and not uh, not plot twists. So, um, you know, if you're a spoiler averse, be aware. Um, we are at multiversitycomics.com where contributors who love comics uh, also read widely and dig deep with reviews and previews and interviews and other podcasts such as the DC3 cast or um, Robots from Tomorrow and, and uh, Make Mine Multiversity. Um, and so check us, check us out at multiversitycomics.com. And if you appreciate this kind of look at graphic novels and comics, please subscribe. And, um, you know, wherever you find podcasts, you can find us. Know that there is an audio-only feed for places like Spotify that don't allow video. But if you're listening to the audio right now, um, if you are on a podcast app that allows video episodes, you would find with these video segments um, here. And maybe you're watching one of those right now. Uh, nothing fancy. You know, I got this little curly cute thing going telling you to follow and subscribe on my screen right now but um just trying to put some visuals to our visual medium our discussion of a visual medium um we're gonna do the polybag segment which is where i talk about new comics that i picked up this week and uh i, I mentioned last week that i think that i would not be you know for the most part talking about dc and marvel titles during polybagged just because actually there's so much coverage i mean i am an avid reader of dc and marvel's universes um but check out the dc3 cast for some really um fun and thoughtful talk about dc comics um or a ton of other places um same with marvel and so i just want to reserve my sort of reviewers by for um yeah, just for some different stuff. Now, what that often means is that um, the you know third third up would be Image Comics, and we do often talk about Image Comics. And you know, Image Comics is a creator-owned outfit, and um, whatever the good or bad of a publisher, um, you always want to. Uh, well, I always want to use the the whatever tiny platform Comic Syllabus has um, to make known the work of you know people like. Uh, David F. Walker, Chuck Brown, and Sanford Green, whose Bitter Root comes out this week, or um, or a title like Descender, or I should say Ascender, um, by Jeff Lemire and Dustin Nguyen, who, which uh, and another issue has come out this week. But when I was planning this episode this week, I decided that I would just put a pause on image titles um, as part of a of a of a you know a broader communication um, from fans and readers and critics. Uh, and creators and obviously mine is a very tiny part but um, as, a, as, a, as a form of communication to say that um, well this past week it was announced um, on Ben Temple Smith the artist's um, I believe Patreon page that Image would be publishing the last chapters of the series Fell which um, Temple Smith drew in collaboration with Warren Ellis in the uh, mid 2000s and um, there are articles out there if you want to read up on the backstory of this and so I won't go into too much detail except to say that um, many uh, people uh, women who were um, from within and also outside or formerly in the industry came forward last summer um, with a kind of I think testimony to truth that um, I, I, I 
struggle to imagine myself having the courage to do, um, to call out um, kind of exploitative relationships and um, an abuse of of his, you know, power or position or privilege um, on the part of Warren Ellis and, you know, uh, for so many uh, women that the, the, the website on which they published these stories was called so many of us.com. Um, and so when that came out, um, of course, the uh, that that image was planning to publish Warren Ellis again without, um, I think, Ellis having, you know, um, satisfied the, the the demands of decency to enter into what um, these these uh, these women who had come forward were were asking for, which was not cancellation or something like that. Um, they were very explicit that they were not looking to end people's livelihoods or something like that, but really to redress some history um, with truth-telling and to change the culture of um, an often toxic, misogynistic, inhospitable, exploitative um, vein in an industry where, you know, I've felt alienated from comics and um, and the comics community because of those elements of the culture. And, 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 and you know, I'm a cishet male who um, has not experienced that kind of abuse. And so um, I have been incredibly um, grateful for the, the kinds of changes that the women like those on so many of us.com have, um, have pushed in the culture and in the industry. And so in a, in a kind of, you know, tiny um, bit of amplification and support that I could do when I was planning which books to talk about this week, although normally I would be talking about a lot of image books among them. And I'll mention a few because I want to pay respect to those individual creators. Um, I just think that I wanted to exercise my prerogative to communicate a message to image um, that, you know, this stuff matters and, and we're paying attention. Um, since the time when I was planning uh, this polybag segment, first of all, the, the, the women themselves uh, and then a number of creators. And then finally, yesterday, image came out with a statement to say they would not be going forward with um, publishing fell. I still feel a sense of the disappointment and disgust that um, that I think we still have to do this discussion every time. And it's not just taken for granted. I mean, what was going on? Were we just were they just talking about it and figured they would test the waters or something? Um, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And um, obviously, most of all, by perpetrators, um, I think, but among all of us um, to to be engaged in restorative and transformative processes, which is exactly what the, um, the, peop the women who came forward and so many of us have been asking for. And so um, my tiny part in my you know, very tiny platform here at the comic syllabus um, was to with exercise my prerogative and talk about some titles from some publishers who, right, of course, are not spotless, nor you know, all of the creators and um, editors that work within these publishers uh, also have um, accountability work to do but you know there's there's something really good coming out from Oni and from Boom and from Vault and from Dark Horse and so this week I 
I just plan to focus on those and um, and to say what I've just said. And so I I say that with a heavy dose of of gratitude that um, the comics industry is becoming a place where you know things too long swept under the carpet are no longer tolerated. And I and I appreciate that for my sake, for our kids' sake, for for the sake of the industry and and for the sake of all of us. And so having said that, um, let me talk about Jana and the Impossible Monsters and Good Luck and Blue Flame and, and Black Hammer Reborn and um, and just pause to continue to hold us to uh, the idealism that comic books inspire as well as the, the criticality that should um, continue to sear our consciences and, and guide our actions. All right, off the soapbox and on to talking about Jenna and the Impossible Monsters um, from Oni Press, written by Chris Somney and Laura Somney and drawn by Chris Somney with colors by Matt Wilson, lettering by Crank. Um, this is the fourth issue. And I got to tell you that uh, I have been following uh, this since issue one because Chris Somney is one of my favorite artists. And um, it was really cool to, to hear about this um, adventure book really targeted toward young readers that Chris and Laura Somney were launching at um, at Oni. And the main disappointing thing for me was to hear that it was only a four-issue miniseries, especially because after I read the first issue, I, I loved the fact that Somney was actually, um, let me just say, luxuriating in terms of his pacing the thing that i would i think be sad about is if somni felt a pressure because of limitations of length or support or time and and if somni felt a pressure if the somnis felt a pressure to um change that storytelling style which you can see on this page here which really lets the visuals do the you know, the action and the character work. Um, Chris Somney is just so good at um, making comics pages that move and dance and and um, and really tell stories without words. And, you know, what that requires is a kind of decompression, you know, where um, eight pages can tell just one action scene. Um, but what I worried about is that, especially after the first or second issue of Jana and I loved the world that they were creating. I loved how much was said without words, but I feared that the pacing of the story would mean that we wouldn't really get too much of a story. Um, we've learned about Jana. We've learned about um, her sister. We've learned about them finding each other and fighting these monsters in a world where the monsters have driven humans out of their homes and land. And um, in issue three, we uh, found uh, the two uh, stepsisters, I think, you know, finding a, a cave full of survivors and so on. We haven't um, moved at a super fast pace. Um, it's that very decompressed style of storytelling. And that's not to say that there hasn't been a ton of information or exposition or things we've learned about the characters. And that's where the art comes in, where um, the Somnies have, you know, clearly crafted things about this world and things about these characters that you can pick up from subtleties of, you know, gesture or facial expressions or relationships between characters or reactions. 
that aren't put into words. And that's really what comics do. Um, I think this story could be a fun read for a young reader and at the same time can be its own complex, you know, uh, lesson in close reading the different cues that comics use beyond and with um, parallel to words. So what I feared was that, you know, we would have an abrupt end to a story that just as it was starting to build its momentum. What came as a surprise was that at the end of issue four, there's a to be continued. And so I believe the first four issues are collected together in an arc. Uh, the trade is coming out this month, I believe, uh, and uh, and what I'm really excited about is that it's it's announced at the end that we're going to get more Jana and the Impossible Monsters in August, which is so good because we're really left <laughs> with the cliffhanger and um, many secrets um, about their family, about where the story is going that are left to be revealed. Um, I'm my fingers are crossed that even as um, Chris Somney is no doubt quite busy and wrapped up with um, other titles that I'm following and interested, Firepower is right here. Um, they're gonna have the chance to um, just continue to expand this story because I just um, really enjoy this artwork. And, um, and I think we have a set of characters and a set of situations that, although still much more can be fleshed out, um, is gonna be exciting reading. And you know, there's a way where um, manga has really understood how to target different audiences, including um, in a way having things that are for young kids and for young adult readers that really kind of graduate them through the, um, the visual literacies involved in reading sophisticated comics. And there's a lot of sophistication in those, uh, those kids' manga. And I think what um, Somni and Somni and company are doing in John and the Impossible Monsters is creating a, I'm going to say, comics language rich book for young readers that um, rewards rereading, slow reading, um, just luxurious enjoyment the way that, you know, kid readers that I know can just sit there with a Harry Potter or Percy Jackson reread for, you know, hours upon hours and and Jana does the same with the visuals the monsters the action the the kinds of environments um, that the characters interact with so um, I'm glad there's gonna be more Jana and the impossible monsters if you haven't checked it out yet um, pick up the four issues or the trade out this month um, from Oni Press and uh, and that then we go on to our next um, book and poly bag this month um, uh, which is a new title from Boom Studios called Good Luck, written by, uh, I think it's Matthew Ehrman, and, and um, art by um, Stefano Simeone, Simeone um, with letters by um, Fiorentino and, and a cover by Jorge Corona, as you can see here. Um, I think Boom has been um, in a bit of a golden age lately with uh, a whole bunch of titles that I think have been really doing what I just said that manga does so well. You know, hitting uh, younger readers, hitting diverse readers, hitting with, with diverse creators, um, telling a range of stories using superheroes or horror or fantasy, sci-fi or whatever, um, to do things that are fun, but while they're at it, um, build on, you know, premises or, or genre mashups that, that are really um, original. And therefore, you know, without trying to be philosophical or, or 
you know, heavy handed on some some ideology, um, keep on moving the needle in, in with popular culture in the kinds of uh, considerations and questions that they raise. And that's, that's what I like um, that comics do. So Good Luck is um, is a book that really takes the idea of luck and probability and turns it into the kind of fantasy or sci-fi element that, you know, within the kind of language of American comics, um, you can think about what they mean. Um, uh, it takes place in a world where there is an, where, where, you know, we are living in an age of luck. And it begins with a flashback to a um, small town in Ohio in 1989, um, where it's kind of the ground zero for some, some big shift that happens. Um, we're in a quiet little suburb, but then these two god beings of luck appear. One bringing bad luck, and you can see the red character on this page, um, and one bringing good luck. Um, and luck, you know, which is that uh, ephemeral thing that we name when things are going right for us or not, um, becomes something tangible and visible and, and magic. And, and so um, you can see Simeon's art um, finding ways to draw in, in in something that's I think between the kind of ooey gooey and the techno sharpness um, this the, these visual depictions of this tangible manifestation of luck um, and so you know bad luck comes uh, personified and bringing all kinds of suffering um, and then good luck also comes uh, bringing fortune and bliss to particular people um, at some point it says that luck becomes quantifiable. And here in issue one, in chapter one, which is called Safe and Sound, um, we actually jump ahead to years later where um, we meet um, a main character, in fact a team of, of main characters, um, including this character Artemis who is in the midst of producing his own music and in some kind of a lab or headquarters where, you know, some kind of controlled environment and you know gets an infusion or an injection of luck and goes into a like a training room and is uh, grouped teamed together with a bunch of other trainees and and you know they're dealing with whatever it is in this world where luck quantified you know put into liquid form and injected into characters can um can be put to work dealing with whatever you know, crises have come about in the world. Um, I, I really like the art in this book. I think that the the I think that the style has, um, you know, these these aspects that are really um, redolent of, you know, what Boom I think is doing really well. Um, these artists who have found a note that is um, that is you know a kind of you know European and and also Asian influenced and. And um, you know a smattering of, of, of U.S. comics in there, and I, you know I'm reminded of Simone De Mio, for instance, um, an artist like that. And I think Boom has been a really nice um, kind of development house for these styles um, and these very different kind of stories. And I think that um, the premise of talking about luck as the the magic or the supernaturalism of this world allows them uh, to to tackle um, the questions that um, adolescents and, and, and us adults ask about why do some people get to get ahead? Why do some people get to be heroic? 
Why do some people get lavished with gifts and others don't? And what is the role of that kind of, mm, it's called luck, but really it's, it's a lot of privilege and opportunity. Um, it's a lot of things that we, you know, haven't earned or ha not, don't have to do with merit. Um, seems whimsically distributed. You know, why, why do they get this favor and I don't? Or why did I get this opportunity and they don't have? And really um, asks those questions along with the role of luck in a world that, uh, a modern world that is really built around minimalizing or mitigating risk. And, you know, I think we have institutions that are trying our best and our darndest as human beings to control life and control the world so that we all supposedly get what we deserve according to our logic. Um, which is not how the world works. And, um, and so it's, it really becomes a story about how, just as we've seen in this issue one, although there's much more to learn, uh, how young people are trained to embrace their hard luck are just the right ones to save the world. I'm intrigued by that kind of premise. So um, I liked Good Luck issue one, and I think it's worth checking out. Um, also this week, um, just want to check in from uh, Vault Comics with, with the Blue Flame issue two. Written by Christopher Cantwell, um, with art by Adam Gorham and colors by uh, Russell and letters by Otsman Elhow. Um, Blue Flame's first issue was pretty intriguing, and I I thought it was um, actually kind of unfortunate that it's coming out at the same time as the Adam Strange title because it sort of um, you know invited all kinds of comparisons. I think in issue two we're really seeing where it it is doing something different from the. Uh, Tom King and, and Mitch Jared's Doc Shaner title over at DC. Um, in issue one, you know, what we encounter is a kind of contradiction, and here's where it's like Adam Strange, between this sort of like Buck Rogers-like sci-fi superhero type character that we see on the cover, um, with many of the classic tropes of, you know, being an adventurer in an alien land, expected to be a sort of savior of uh, faraway places, as well as, you know, the hometown earth um that and a kind of mundane and contemporary you know american every every person kind of um and something going on where these are the same people but um but clearly we're living on on two different planes um adam strange has taken that you know i think 10 issues of that have come out to think about um celebrity and power i think something really different is going on here um under um, Christopher Cantwell, former TV writer, um, I think a, a creator of Halt and Catch Fire, a show that's supposed to be really good, I've never seen it. Um, but I like Cantwell's comics work. Um, and Adam Gorham, who is an artist I've, I've quite enjoyed um, in terms of the design and visual storytelling um, proficiency there. Um, in issue two, we are actually opening up on the aftermath of what issue one ended with, which is, um, you know, a bit of a content warning for a traumatic reality of our times. Um, essentially, a, a kind of mass shooting event, and we open up with um, a character that we find out is our main character's sister, uh, hearing about this mass shooting event. And you can see on this page that um, this reaction is amazing, as uh, she's grabbing donuts and hearing on the news about. Um, about the shooting, there's a kind of 
kind of non-reaction on her face that so many of us can relate to where um, we are just fatigued with hearing uh, over and over and over again about the results of um, the crazy gun violence in the United States. And, um, and so it's, it's kind of everyday news for her. Um, of course, later on in the issue, she finds out that's in fact her brother who is one of the superheroes who was caught up in this shooting event. Um, and so she enters the story in a really interesting way. Meanwhile, the sort of kind of like other story, the al al alternative universe um, in the sci-fi fantasy, Blue Flame, who is this character, is, um, this is far away and some, you know, and is supposed to make a case before an intergalactic council for preserving Earth despite Earth's slowness to change and failing to kind of match the progress of other planets who have, you know, whatever, evolved and, and progressed um, toward harmony in, um, in a much more impressive way as we kind of see Blue Flame being shown around to see those kinds of planets. And um, what really winds up crystallizing towards this issue is a kind of mounting case for how our concern for each other as human beings um, exemplified or not exemplified in things like how we respond to gun violence um, holds us back from progress but how maybe um, you know blue flame is now expected to make a case for humanity to make a case for how uh, and what human beings cherish what um, in, in words that are repeated in this issue what we can't live without um, there's uh, a scene where um, Blue Flame is taken to see the full record of sentient life in the universe. And then, you know, there's like, you know, many, many boxes for, for different planets. And then, and then he comes to the, the record of, you know, stuff worth keeping for Earth. And it's just like a few boxes of, of like, uh, you know, some CDs. You know? <laughs> and this is like the full record that this tribunal has kept in these four tiny boxes of what's worth, worth keeping in human history. And as Blue Flame is examining it, he's like, he's nowhere to be found, and he's, he's, uh, like flummoxed that, um, that this is what is uh, supposedly valuable in human history. Um, I think it's just some super interesting questions being raised, um, with again some overlap with Adam Strange, but also doing something uh, quite different. And so I'm enjoying Blue Flame. Uh, pick up this title from Vault Comics. Um, and finally, we come to Black Hammer Reborn. Um, if you've been a reader of the Black Hammer universe, um, originally penned by Jeff Lemire with uh, various artists co-creating, and then now actually various creator teams um, playing things out in the universe, um, Black Hammer Reborn, number one, is out this week. And uh, we finally get to ha find out what happened with something that was a bit of a, a long-standing open mystery. Um, what's happened to, to Black Hammer, uh, the, the second Black Hammer, the one that you see here on the cover, um, who is the daughter of the original Black Hammer character who disappeared prior to the events of the first issue, you know, the first series, the original Black Hammer series, where this superhero team, which is, you know, kind of analog to uh, many of the superhero kinds of characters and tropes that we've seen in comics for a century. Um, and the team is sort of living on a farm and stuck 
you know, for a decade trapped in this existence, this small town existence. Um, and we later learn that Black Hammer, who is the character in the title but doesn't show up in the first issue, um, was this, you know, was a heavy on the team who sort of gave his life trying to help them get out of this situation. And, um, and the Black Hammer title, the Black Hammer universe, has always been about you know, our hero stories and how they fit or don't fit with real life. And Lemire and other creators have been fashioning these really interesting spins on some standard um, or, you know, well-known, well-worn superhero tropes. And I think it's been, um, you know, sometimes uh, I, I really get, I really feel vibe with what they're doing in the rehash. And sometimes I'm, I'm not sure too much. Um, but uh, we open issue one of this kind of revisit of where we left off in the main Black Hammer storyline with, again, our second Black Hammer. And there's a recap of how um, how this Black Hammer comes into her role as a young woman. She's trying to investigate what happened, the mystery of her, her disappeared father. And she winds up being the one in the past series, sort of spoilers for that, um, finding the old crew trapped in this alternative small town that... Um, you know, an enemy has constructed for them and then uh, helping them to to break free from it. And her own kind of heroic turn, as you see in this recap, where she picks up the hammer and becomes the Black Hammer. Um, but what we have in this issue is we kind of jump to 20 years later and we see Black Hammer in her own kind of um, maybe self-imposed or maybe imposed by the way that society reacts to heroes um, her, trapped in her own kind of domestic existence. Um, you know, she's got a husband, she's got teenage kids, she's left behind the mantle of the Black Hammer. And, um, you know, and I think um, Lemire, and in this case, um, I should have mentioned artist Caitlin Yarsky, um, colors by Dave Stewart, um, Nate Picos lettering. Um, they're doing their own take on yet another common superhero story, you know, one that goes you know, as far back as the, the golden age, but, um, but um, I think is as, I think comes hand in hand with all of those originary super stories, you know, uh, superhero stories, you know, for every superhero story, there is as deep a cultural impression of the deconstruction of it. And so um, Black Hammer Reborn is having us take this uh, latter day Black Hammer character and consider a world in which, um, sort of post the highs of that superhero uh, stint feels the call back to action from their, again, very sort of mundane existence. Um, this, similar to those questions from um, Blue Flame number two, uh, that still kind of effectively does that superhero story thing of making us think about our own lives and our real lives. And the way that our ambitions and, you know, how we, uh, want to be the heroes of our own story and saving the world come up against um well raising kids and making dinner um i think that of course there's going to be many more twists and turns to come in black hammer reborn uh, i'm just excited to be back in, in this uh caitlin yarsky uh, their art at a couple image titles have been impressive and so i'm um i'm glad to see yarsky's art here in uh, black hammer so let's keep watching that. Let's keep following that here at um, the Polybag segment on Comic Syllabus. Um, and so these are the other comics that I'm, you know, picking up this week. And um, Mr. Miracle, The Source of Freedom, uh, number two is out. Um, it is a cool reinvention of, of the Mr. Miracle character and premise. Uh, you should check out Superman, uh, Batman Superman number 19. Um, 
written by a favorite of comic syllabus Gene Luen Yang continues on uh, recently announced that it will be ending I think at issue 21 or 22 which is sad to say um, because I think it's been telling a fun and great story Wonder Woman Black and Gold number one is coming out it's sort of anthology of uh, you know of uh, in the vein of Batman Black and White and Superman Red and Blue and White or something um, Marvel Voices Pride number one is out um, Marvel's got some work to do um let's say in lgbtqia representation and uh and support but i think um this marvel voices pride issue is interesting to me and the next installment of the um russell and isaac's fantastic four life story is out i'm interested in that uh, i think i've mentioned before chariot number four um or chariot by um team of creators i've really liked um i read this issue and as much as I enjoy the premise and the art, I, I don't know that I love where this story is going, but um, been along for the ride so far. Um, and then some titles from Image that I will continue to be reading, Bitterroot, Undiscovered Country, um, Shadecraft, and Ascender. Um, that's Polybag for this week. Um, thanks so much for hanging with us and stick around as we talk about other comics and graphic novels. I'm reading uh, and stay with us each week, Polly Bagged will look at new comics out. Thanks, and let's keep reading. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together, we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. Hey, comic syllabus uh, subscribers and followers. Um, this is the segment called The Infinite Unlimited where we look at Marvel and DC Comics that are um, three months and six months later than their releases respectively because they are out on these um, incredible subscription streaming apps Marvel Unlimited and DC Universe Infinite where at the comic syllabus we can check in on um, Marvel and DC titles um, but we don't have to shell out the big bucks of buying them at the comic book store even though I still do that. <laughs> um, so if you are not a subscriber to Marvel Unlimited or DC Universe, of course you can still access these uh, books. However, you um, buy books at the comic shop, um, but um, these are the latest this week out. Um, and we start at uh, Marvel Comics with, um, no sorry, we start at DC Comics today with um, these titles that were out this past week from DC Universe Infinite. Um, I want to start with Static. Static is back, and so is Milestone. I'm so, so excited about this. Um, uh, fans of the show know that Milestone is just the coolest um, to me, um, really important and um, influential on my comics reading life. And um, I've been, been super thrilled that um, Static and Icon and Rocket and um, and hardware are coming back. Static is, of course, the first. Um, I talked about the original run of Static and that um, writing by 
Robert Washington III and, and Dwayne McDuffie and the art by um, John Paul Leone in an earlier episode of Comic Syllabus. But um, here we have Vita Ayala and art by Chris Cross and Nicholas Draper Ivy um, on this new incarnation of Static, which um, we saw in the Milestone Returns um, one shot that the originary event of the Milestone universe, of the Dakota verse, which is called the Big Bang, um, has happened in in this reboot. It's happened at, um, in the at the location at the at the um, at the event of a um, a protest uh, against police violence, um, and so firmly rooting us in the Black Lives Matter movement of um, of now. Uh, Vida Ayala, Chris Cross, and Nicholas Draper Ivy give us a static that has some of that um, quick wit, that sense of humor, that kind of um, great command of how, of how to be socially with it that the original Virgil Hawkins had. Um, but the art has more of an influence both from <clears throat> the original milestone styles of someone like Jean Paul Leon and from uh, more contemporary styles that are influenced by anime and things like that. Um, we have in static number one, many of the old characters back, Virgil, his family, um, Frida, um, some of the friends. You can see that some of the elements of the original static that would be not the best representation nowadays are gone and instead I think they're replaced with something that is definitely more of a 2020s vibe than a 1990s vibe where rather than this um, shall we say kind of like defiance of dominant culture and of the the experience of racism pervading communities um, instead there's a kind of a, a heavy-heartedness actually that sits throughout the whole book and I don't think that's a, a negative thing at all. In fact, I think it's reflective of a generational way that, you know, young folks today have to find our fun and our humanity at the same time that we take very seriously the things that are going on in the world. So we have a static and a Virgil who is um, still quick-witted, you know, still up for having a good time, but is also, um, you can see that the entire scene, especially in one particular set of pages where it contrasts the pre-Big Bang dinner table scene of the family to, to afterwards, that there's a heaviness um, that they're carrying. And I think it's really interesting because to me, this, the character of Static has always been about using not just the superpowers, but the wit, the attitude, the defiance against like forces of evil and white supremacy to overcome, to kind of supersede the way that um, dominant culture may try to like snuff out black life and that's still there in static in in, in ayala and crisscross and draper ivy's hands but i think there's also this almost this recognition that leaning so far into that attitude in prior generations would allow for some sweeping under the carpet of just how tough things are and and how much suffering there is in the world uh, and and how much there is a need for connection and love and and honesty so that i'd say that this is a more vulnerable virgil uh, as much as Vol virgil was very um vulnerable in his original incarnations he was also deflecting a lot and you see that a little bit less with his virgil um static itself is still figuring out superpowers 
Um, you know, we're early on, so we're still going to see how it connects with the rest of the Dakotaverse. Um, I'm just super excited because even though I am picking these up um, in hard copies, they're also showing up day and day on DC Universe Infinite. I mean, that in itself pays for the subscription. So I, I just think the value in DC Universe Infinite with all the things that they have coming straight to this, the streaming service is pretty great. Um, so that's static number one. But speaking of things going straight or first to digital, um, Sensational Wonder Woman Chapter 10 is also out this past week. It is the second of a two-part story written by Amy Chu and art by Sanapo uh, and Broom. And just a interesting, fun story in um, Sensational Wonder Woman Chapter 10. Um, I think that the name of the story is something called Ultimate Fan or something like that. And it's a, it's a like I said, a two-part story that, you know, could be a single-issue comic about a, uh, uh, an older woman, and um, she's in a nursing home, and the, and the older woman um, is uh, what they sometimes um, call a runner. <laughs> she's, she wants to um, break free of the nursing home. And, um, and uh, of course, she's dealing with some of the things um, that often come with old age. And the, but the creators are, are showing it with such honor because you know sometimes when older folks are lost more in their memory than in the reality around them in the moment um, comics allow us to see how rich and how important that memory could be and in the case of this fangirl that memory is of a longtime friendship with with Diana with Wonder Woman who of course you know they were both young in those um, in those World War two times and then she's aged well her association with Wonder Woman has continued and Wonder Woman has stayed Wonder Woman. And so the um, just the sweetness of the story of this um, old friend and this old woman, it's, uh, it really does it for me. I think there's a lot of sentiment and a lot of um, affection and, and respect for um, this uh, the fellow geriatric for, from Wonder Woman um, in this story. So I just enjoyed the closing of this chapter. Awesome cover art too, by the way. You could see there from um, DK Ruan, who is also the artist on Shang Chi. Um, I think that's a pretty cool looking cover. Um, and that brings us to Fortnite number five. Um, Fortnite, <laughs> Batman Fortnite Zero Point, a comic I never thought I would be reading. Um, and I gotta admit that um, when it first came out, written by Krista Gage with art by um, Starro and and Dusay and Klaus, I was not that. I was I was not interested in it. I'm not really a gamer. Um, I only know of Fortnite because I hang out with adolescents who, who do the dances. <laughs> but I heard some pretty good things about the first few um, issues of this. And since I have DC Universe Infinite and it was available to me, I started to read it. It was cool because you have a Batman at those first issues who was really being uh, Batman the Detective, which is my favorite Batman. But... Um, Unfortunately, soon this story devolves into we have to make a story make sense out of a video game world and the things that make a, a video game world fun for video games don't necessarily make for good comic storytelling in my opinion. And so there's a lot of ways that they're trying to make sense of why we're here and why we have these repeated rounds of fighting and why when you die you respawned that um, now we're getting into a kind of a, a territory where I was just not into Batman Fortnite zero point number five the way that the first couple issues intrigued me. Uh, nonetheless, I'm sure people are reading this 
who um, don't care what my opinion is, <laughs> but um, and I and hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> Meanwhile, I keep getting an email after I finish every issue that I've unlocked some new thing in, in Fortnite as a game, but I don't play. So if you want it, let me know <laughs> or you can just read the issue and you'll get it yourself. So I don't know if I'm going to keep going with Batman Fortnite Zero Point, but there it is on the app. Um, and that brings us to Death Metal, um, last stories of the DC Universe. And I saw as they were coming out towards the end of the big Death Metal event that, um, you know, Snyder and company uh, brought to a big multiversal apocalypse or culmination or something, some sort. I didn't read much of it, to be honest, um, having to do with the Batman who laughs and perpetual character and Wonder Woman and something, something, something. Uh, <laughs> I suppose it's there now in DC Universe Infinite, so I may... Um, indulge in some of that and try to catch up with what the heck was going on uh, but one thing about events like those is they occasion the chance for one shots like this I think it's about 80 pages or so and it's um, it's the last stories of the DC universe there was a framing story um, um, that is written by Joshua Williams and James Tynan the third uh, the fourth and Scott Snyder um, that features the Titans and you really kind of get to see all the Titans of you know every generation of Titans all assembled together. Um, that's too many titans for us to get too deep with them, but it, it gives um, artist Travis Moore a chance to kind of draw, you know, many generations of Dick Grayson's <laughs> and to see the characters kind of chatting with each other and, and little tiny details that you can catch. Um, but within that framing story, as the title says, it is the last days of whatever sort of grand end that's brought that's being brought about by death metal, and so. What I like about it is just, just lots of short stories that allow for that kind of, you know, final season or final episode, season finale or series finale of Lost or whatever. All the sentiment comes out, you know, we don't have to deal with all of the um, stupid plot points or who knows what about, you know, continuity. But really just like the core of these characters getting to um, express the last things they want to say as they know certain death is around the corner. I suppose because of death metal um and so you get jeff lemire and Al Raphael albuquerque working on a green lantern story you got mariko tamaki and daniel sampier on on a wonder woman story that's quite nice um gail simone and megan hetrick on um, a green arrow and black canary story um christopher sabella and and chris mooneyham on an aquaman and cecil castellucci and mirka andolfo on a pretty fun bat family story together and then um mark wade and francis manipul on a superman tale um kind of fun and uh not something that i would have bought at the shop but something definitely fun to dip into on dc universe Infinite. um and finally the sweet tooth the return issue two um seems like more than just an opportunity to cash in on the netflix show showing up um but maybe not much more <laughs> um i love sweet tooth the original series and you know got it in issues got it in trades got it in compendiums but um and i thought it was all done just nicely you know wrapped up and together in a package uh and then jeff lemire i couldn't resist the temptation um what's nice is you know i miss seeing lemire draw jeff lemire writes so much stuff now that surely there's very little time for him to actually draw but he's drawing and and it's weird because the book opens um if you read first issue of sweet tooth the return the second issue is out this week on dc universe infinite um but the first issue you know um it says it starts by saying it's 300 years later but Gus is back, um, and indeed Gus is slowly retrieving memories of being Gus and of of Jeopard and of the original story. If you've read Sweet Tooth, or even if you're just watching the show right now, um, 
I would probably not read Sweet Tooth the Return unless you've read Sweet Tooth the original 30 some odd issue uh, story. Um, but the different twist on this is that, uh, like I said, it's 300 years later. We don't quite know at this point why Gus is still around or why he's back, but he's definitely not in the cabin in the woods that we he started with at the beginning of the original Sweet Tooth. Instead, there's a character who calls himself Father, but is clearly some kind of um, religious priest, zealot, um, cult-like thing going on. He's got all kinds of followers who are you know, sort of controlling Gus's environment to maybe to try to reproduce because I remember there were some like truly religious apocalyptic um, uh, background things in the original Sweet Tooth of minor spoilers that um, were the reason for the hybrids and this apocalypse and so on. Um, but um, this this father character is clearly trying to, you know, manipulate this 300 years later Gus probably to produce some kind of result and seize power i don't know um anyway it's just back it's just nice to be back with these characters and this world and in issue two um the story pushes out a little bit further and we meet some of the other characters i think it ultimately is was a six issue run so it's completed in normal comics world but in our dc universe infinite six months later world um it's just going to be fun to see this roll out this black label title written and drawn by jeff lemire um that's what i checked out this week on dc universe infinite and now let's take a look at marvel unlimited uh, and so now we come to what's new on the um, marvel unlimited app um and uh this week um I think a fun thing to read if you have been watching Loki and kind of into it is that um, Mariko Tamaki and artist um, Per Gurihiru um, have this four issue uh, all ages series Thor and Loki Double Trouble. It is a lot of fun. Um, Gurihiru have drawn a few miniseries like this or single issue things with the Marvel characters and um, with Tamaki writing you can you can tell there's going to be some some mirth and mayhem and trick tricking and trickstering which um is perfect loki material um thor being the sort of you know brash crims chris hemsworth like thor loki being a very like uh tricky hiddleston like loki um and you know all with the the fun and and lavish um guru hero art so um first issue of thor and loki double trouble is there on Marvel Unlimited. Um, this week also brings the debut of Children of the Atom, which if you are uh, reading the Hickman, X-Men, uh, Krakoa kind of Reign of X thing going on right now, um, you probably already know about, or if you haven't been, but you're looking for something within all of these X-Books to follow. And if you were a past fan of of New Mutants or Generation Next, um, Children of the Atom is is for you um it's a team of it's sort of the you know young young mutants team and in this case it's a team of young mutants who haven't um joined the big krakoan party they're still out there for reasons yet unknown and um it's uh, written by vita yala and uh drawn by bernard chang uh, and we've got a beautiful rb silva cover here um but in this first issue i i don't even think we get the the you know um hand the superhero handles for most of these characters they, they sort of call each other by their first name we're getting to know them um they're they're all new they they sort of parallel the original x-men there's a bamfing nightcrawler character there's a uh, there's clearly a um 
a Cyclops character, uh, you know, and and uh, and there's a Gambit like, you know, so some certain uh, um, analogs to past X-Men characters. But the um, the Children of Adam team, um, you know, face off against this other sort of young mutant team out there. And again, because it's not set on Krakoa quite yet, they haven't. You know, you can see that the, um, you know, Scott and, and Jean are starting to think about how do we do we reel these these you know these uh, children of the Adam do we do we bring them into the fold here? Um, but because it's still kind of independent from all of the, um, you know, Charles Xavier and uh, and Magneto shenanigans <laughs> on the island, um, it stands on its own pretty well as a story and it seems um, super intriguing I like these new characters we see some of the relationships uh, between them um, we have you know non-binary characters and queer characters and um, and as a set of character designs and power sets and stuff like that it's pretty cool um, especially if you like the way that you know expansions of younger generations of mutant books have often built on the past but also kind of brought their own thing and you know, one, again, um, and and this may be because Vidayella uh, writes both that static book that I talked about over on on DC and and Children of the Atom. There's a tone of both youthful exuberance, and um, now I, I kind of um, hesitate to use the word heaviness, um, but I I feel like Vidayella's writing has just this great way that I I really relate to of maybe writing for a time when young people have to take so many things seriously they just really kind of understand that um you know this is a generation of of a huge amount of social responsibility you know and as a 40 year old who for many years taught teenagers who are now the 20 year olds and and 25 year olds i i know that that is um a way that they're very much living into like a legacy of you know post 9-11, post Bush administration, post Afghanistan era um, activism and sense of, you know, social and civic responsibility. Anyway, I, I just get that a little bit with Children of the Atom and Vida Ayala's work. I'm a big fan of their, their writing everywhere and um, glad that it's now landed on Marvel Unlimited for us to read month to month. Um, something else that I've been reading month to month is Daredevil. Uh, the the current run of Daredevil, written by uh, Chip Zdarsky and drawn by Marco Cicchetto. Cicchetto. Um, uh, kind of continues from, you know, starting from issue one. We're now on 20-something. Uh, 28 is the issue. I just looked it up. <laughs> that you see down here. Um, uh, what you get is this incredibly cool um, Mark Cicchet Marco Cicchetto, um design for Electra, who has come to stand in for uh, Matt Murdock because uh, Murdock is taking the rap for, well, he the deserved rap for the murder that he committed um, in, in the act of service uh, in the line of duty as Daredevil when he, um, you know, killed um, somebody, at, I think it was uh, one of the criminals that he was fighting in, in an early issue. And so this whole run has been a lot of questions about power and justice and about the violence of you know enforcers and authority uh, authority figures be they legal or extra legal and um, murdoch feels a, a responsibility to face accountability for having caused um, this this person's death and so um he's in jail wilson fisk is in power 
and Electra comes to um, sit in for Matt. We don't get a lot of the goings-ons of Electra as Daredevil, despite the first appearance, first cover appearance of Electra Daredevil. I think we'll see that more in the coming issues. Um, but we do see plenty of Matt in prison, um, forming tenuous alliances and facing typical prison struggles. Um, all of those, though, just kind of make stark all of these questions of justice and accountability that the story is asking so um i'm always keeping up and and here for some daredevil i've liked zadarsky's run a whole lot so daredevil 28 is there at the marvel unlimited app as is uh eternals number three um i gotta tell you the truth karen gillen and isad ribic on an eternal story with the movie coming out you know directed by chloe zhao i'm i'm excited for all of those participants i still have um just caught up even though i've been picking these up in single issues and it's farther along of course three months farther along i still have very little idea what's happening right now <laughs> the eternals have always been pretty confusing i liked the neil gaiman and uh john romita jr miniseries uh that was my best introduction i think and i think the best introduction out there to the original the original um eternals characters um, but in a way that's just kind of typical for Kieran Gillen, who I just, res I, you know, I respect the architect, but I just, he's not my favorite because I never really know what's going on, um, <laughs> whether it's Wicked and Divine or Journey into Mystery. And I feel that way a little bit. Every every Kieran Gillen book to me is a journey into mystery. I feel a little bit about the Eternals with that. Um, but, but the Isad Rivich art goes a long, long way for me. And so um, I will continue to puzzle out this series as I reread Eternals. Um, and finally, speaking of art that I love, um, Nonstop Spider-Man is um, written by Joe Casey and drawn by one of my favorites, Chris Bachalo, Bachalo, I don't know. Um, this book is hitting some delays now, I think, in the latter issues. I think three, I, I have three in hand and four is supposed to be coming out. Um, but one is there in Marvel Unlimited and Marvel Unlimited is a great way to catch these titles as they come out or to store them up and then pick them up when you've made some movement. I think the three issues of Nonstop Spider-Man, which as the title says, is kind of like the, the, you know, the movie Speed, it's kind of all premised on. Um, I think this drug that, you know, Peter's trying to find out about and that people from um, Empire State University are getting caught up in, but there is a, a momentum to the story. It's it's. You know, like that Keanu Reeves movie Speed, it's just like it's supposed to keep going. It is nonstop. And that means um, lots and lots of pages of double page spreads with like some really cool storytelling and, and just kind of exploding out of the panels, which if you like Chris Bacciolo's modern work, um, you know that that is pretty glorious to see. So I've been into nonstop Spider-Man and issue one is there at Marvel Unlimited. Um, so these are the things I'm reading. Uh, let me know what you're reading on Marvel Unlimited or DC Universe Infinite. Let me know what you think about the Infinite Unlimited um, segment. And um, I am still sort of, I think sometimes we will just catch up with what's new on the apps, um, especially the digital only releases. Um, and then we will also maybe take some deep dives. In fact, I'm reading a bunch of Loki um, to compare side by side with the show and want to do an episode soon about what I've read and noticed in terms of themes and in terms of ideas that were are there in the comics and are, are being kind of resurfaced and brought to glorious purpose um, in the Loki TV show. Um, but let me know what you think about the Infinite Unlimited. Subscribe to the comic syllabus. Find us at our home at Multiversity Comics. Um, and thanks.